Welcome to the first episode of The Switch, where we chat to some of the most fascinating people in entertainment, sport and business. Today, we're joined by none other than Sean Wallace, the quiz master known as the Dark Destroyer from the hit TV show, The Chase. But there's much more to Sean than just the formidable quizzing abilities. He's also a highly accomplished barrister and a TV personality with a unique life journey. In this episode, we dive deep into his story, exploring everything from his early setbacks and triumphs, such as being the first black person to win Mastermind. Sean's journey is an inspiring one, full of valuable lessons on the power of determination, grit and hard work. He shares his insights on how to shake off the shackles of procrastination and achieve success, while also giving us a glimpse into his personal life, including the secret mural in his attic. So if you're ready for an insightful and inspiring conversation with one of the most intriguing personalities on TV, sit back and enjoy as we quiz Sean Wallace on his life, his challenges and his triumphs. This is an episode you don't want to miss. Sean, welcome. Thank you for having me, G. Thank you. We're all very excited to have you here with us in the building. You are part of this very long-running TV show. It's been a huge success. Yeah, uh, you know, a success beyond even my wildest dreams or the dreams of the producers, actually. When we first did the show back in uh, June 2009, we did the pilot. We thought it would be good, uh, but we were up against a show called uh, The Fuse, which was uh, hosted by the former rugby international Austin Healy. And it was a toss of a coin between whether or not uh, 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 the fuse or the chase was going to be the sort of uh, staple ITV uh, uh, tea time uh, quiz show. And apparently, uh, so I've been told, that uh, there were a few executives who wanted to actually have the fuse. Uh, but uh, lucky for us that the fuse uh, sort of ran out uh, before it exploded. And uh, here we are 13 years later. It's really quite something, isn't it? And I understand that you are still a practicing barrister. How on earth do you manage the two well as i say uh, i'm a barrister who happens to be on tv not the other way around and uh you know uh the reason why i actually managed to actually juggle uh, uh both careers at the same time is because i've got a wonderful supportive team a clerking team at my chambers great J- great james Street chambers and obviously uh i've got a very very understanding uh, team at the uh, chase who realize and uh, know how important my legal career is to me wow now when you are performing on TV as the Dark Destroyer, how much of that is a persona and how much of that is you? It, it is me. Um, you know, obviously, a sort, the sort of cult of personality developed in relation to uh, Sean Wallace and Sean Wallace the Dark Destroyer. But when I am quizzing, I'm dead serious. I'm not there to lie. I'm not there to smile. I'm not there to actually, you know, have fun with the contestants. I'm there to win. I mean, yesterday I was in a uh, recording at uh, our, our Austri Studios and I had to take on a formidable team. Uh, and they set me a challenging target, uh, and all four got back to the final chase. And, uh, you know, they pushed me back a couple of times. I had about a minute uh, to answer 12 questions, and I managed to answer them uh, successively correctly, and I've been with about three seconds to spare. So it can be challenging, but it's not always like that. Uh, you know, I do have the odd setback or two, but uh, by and large, we as chasers uh, normally come out on top. Oh, and I can tell by the way you're speaking how much you are still very passionate about it and very serious about Absolutely, it. Absolutely, because of the fact that um, it is a, a an important tea time show uh, that's, uh, you know, sort of taken into the sort of national consciousness. And for us to actually stay on top of our game, we've got to take our craft seriously. So, you know, I revise about two to three hours a day, uh, even after filming. Um, so it's very, very important for me to actually keep up to date uh, in relation to what's going on in terms of current events, news, films, whatever, uh, you know, things like that. So we've always got to stay on top of our game in terms of uh, uh, feeding our minds with knowledge. Wow. 
And with the two different roles that you you still successfully do, do they feed different parts of your your brain, memory, performance? How does that work? Well, the one thing uh, what's helped me in this sort of shark-infested world of entertainment is the fact that uh, I've used my barrister skills in a transferable way. You know, the one thing I'm grateful for uh, the law uh, is that it taught me how to actually be calm under pressure, uh, to research, uh, to think on my feet, uh, to uh, uh, not be phased if I get something wrong. So, you know, sometimes while I'm in court, we're, oh, Mr. Wallace, please get on with your submissions. You know, uh, those are the sort of things which, uh, you know, you can't allow to basically, um, you know, wear, grind you, grind you down or sort of, uh, make you lose confidence. Because if you don't have those uh, uh, sort of calm and sort of uh, sang for our attitude towards uh, your ability, then what's the point of me being a chaser? Absolutely. And I love the fact that you bring up transferable skills because often people that make switches, it isn't an obvious segue into the next thing. But actually, when you take the time to think about what the skills are that you've used in that there are many transferable there things. are and that's, that's the one thing uh, I, i'm grateful for like um organizations uh, such as yours is that they sort of promote the fact that uh, talent is transferable in terms of skill uh you know uh, back in the day when you sort of uh, uh worked in a particular field of employment you were sort of pigeonholed and thought that uh, that's all you could actually do and you know until uh, uh, you actually got your uh, pension and retirement and uh, that was it really but nowadays especially in working modern practices uh, it's uh, important that we realise that the skills that we do have in terms of the training, the knowledge and the skills which we've uh, developed and perfected over the years can be used in a transferable way. Absolutely, and be confident in those skills. Yeah. So we're going to get to the, the, the switching moment in just a moment, but before we go there, we're still talking about your dual career. Which is more satisfying? Which one like gets you leaping out of bed in the morning? It will always be being a barrister, I suppose. And I'll tell you the reason why, uh, you know, when we talk about my uh, legal career, I've always wanted to be a lawyer ever since I was 11 years old. And the fact that to use your skills uh, uh, to actually try and help uh, somebody uh, uh, in a disadvantaged way who will actually need your legal professional advice, and, you know, standing up and representing them, uh, especially in a very, very uh, important serious trial, because I am a practicing criminal barrister. Uh, and, uh, you know, to hear the words uh, um, not guilty by a jury foreman uh, is rewarding and satisfying in relation to the hard work and dedication you do in terms of preparing the case, uh, in terms of um, having that sort of uh, rapport with your client, having that rapport with your instructing solicitor, because we all work as a team to try and get the same end, uh, the best possible result you can for your client. Um, it's always satisfying when... Um, uh, as a chaser, that I managed to actually snatch £100,000 at the last second uh, from a client uh, because it makes great TV. Although sometimes, as I say, uh, you know, uh, the watching audience will always want uh, the uh, uh, contestants to win. But for me, you know, they gave, they both give me great satisfaction. But, um, you know, being a lawyer is always I've always wanted to be. And, uh, you know, being on TV uh, is a wonderful bonus, which even... Uh, when I look back on my life, I never ever thought or envisaged would ever have happened to me. But, um, you know, life has a sort of habit of, you know, throwing you um, unexpected uh, things which come on in your life. And uh, it's important that you grab the opportunity when it's presented to you. Absolutely. So let's go back. You mentioned being 11 years old, knowing you wanted to be in the legal profession. Yeah. Where did that come from? Talk us through it. Um, you're far too young to remember programmes, G like Crown Court uh, and Petricelli and programmes like Rumpel at the Bailey. And as a young boy, I was fascinated, especially with Horace Rumpel, who was my sort of fictional legal hero, uh, who wasn't interested in uh, fame or fortune. He was interested 
in being a, a totally dedicated barrister for his craft. And I was impressed in relation to the fact that he always put his client's interest first before uh, any financial reward which may come his way. And, you know, the one thing I always say to young uh, entrants who are coming into the profession, it's always important to, uh, not to put the cart before the horse. It's always important to make sure that you put your client's interest first. And if you do that, uh, and, and um, irrespective of how serious or trivial the case is, always make sure you thoroughly prepare uh, uh, your brief. Uh, then um, as you develop your career, you'll become more and more uh, proficient, more and more uh, recognized, more and more in demand. Uh, and uh, as I say, instead of chasing the money, the money will be chasing you if you're good enough. I love that. And I'm sure you've got a thousand stories, but are th is there any one particular case from your legal profession that sticks in your mind that you could share I'll, with us? I'll, I would always say uh, the very first uh, time I uh, went into uh, court as a, uh, a young fledgling barrister, you know, I was sort of, you know, dripping in sweat, you know, really nervous in relation to making my first bail application. And it went quite well, even though I actually didn't get bail. And uh, the client who actually was giving me a lot of grief at uh, uh, the outset because he thought I was sort of too green between the ears to be representing him, uh, actually wanted me to actually represent him at trial. I'll always remember my first Crown Court trial uh, because, again, you know, representing somebody in front of a jury is a nerve-wracking experience. But as I say, what helps calm that nerves, uh, those nerves is proper preparation. The one thing you can't change as a, an advocate uh, uh, in a Crown Court trial is the nature of the evidence. You've got you, you've got to deal with the hand you're dealt with. Uh, but I'll I never forget, and it's a, it's something which I've kept on my wall, uh, the comments the judge made in relation to my, my closing speech. He said it was an excellent speech. And I've got that uh, um, on my wall, and it's, it, it, it told me that, um, you know, I have the right to be here. Uh, and it gave me so much uh, confidence and sort of boost to my sort of... Uh, uh, professional ego, I suppose. Uh, ego, I suppose that uh, yes, I can be a pastor and I can succeed, even though as they trying to climb uh, what always is considered to be the top of the greasy pole uh, can be difficult because inexorably you find yourself sliding down again. But eventually, you know how to actually grip hold of that pole, uh, and when you eventually get to the top or near to the top, the hard thing is staying there. Absolutely, I love that. And is there any particular story that stands out from your? television career winning mastermind being the first black person to win mastermind in 2004 will always be uh, something which uh, will live with me to the rest of my days and i remember when uh, uh the uh, final buzzer went and uh, i'd won uh but i remember i sat there for about um about two minutes um tears just i i don't think i've ever been happy g in my entire life tears were just uh, uh, winning uh running down my uh, cheeks and i was remembering all the hard times all the sad times, all the difficulties I had, especially uh, trying to pass those exams when I was a young kid growing up. Uh, and I remember uh, Michael Grady presented me with a trophy. He said to me, I, I see that you had a tear in your eye. Yeah, I did. You know, uh, because um, I suppose what I achieved as a black uh, uh, person, uh, you know, people have stereotypical views in relation to black people. We're good at sports, we're good at music, but not so renowned for our intellect. Well, I shattered that myth. And it just goes to show that irrespective of your colour, uh, irrespective of your gender, irrespective of your ability, uh, if you have that sort of love and passion to learn, uh, then uh, none of those things should be a bar. Love that. And let's go back a few steps. Obviously, winning Mastermind will be that, that jewel in your crown. But how on earth did you get to the point for applying for Mastermind? Did you always want to go on the show? Right. Um, 
As I say, I wrote a book called Chasing the Dream, as you can see in front of you. Uh, and the second part of the autobiography talks about, uh, you know, my career was going through a bit of a sort of um, um, doldrums, I would say, in the sort of 90s. I mean, when I first started out, my career was really flying. But, uh, you know, sometimes life gets in the way in terms of um, having that rose-tinted glasses approach to uh, the profession. Because I always used to think that... Um, you know, winning cases would be all or end all, but there's more to that. You know, sometimes you've got to ingratiate yourself between, uh, in terms of getting work and, uh, you know, the sort of casting couch uh, situation, which I wasn't prepared to actually engage or sort of tolerate. I decided, well, that's it, I'd had enough. I was really, really uh, um, despondent, uh, dejected. Uh, and that was the first time I walked out of the legal profession. So I was practicing by myself at home for about four months. Uh, and, you know, during the sort of doldrums, uh, uh, when I wasn't getting as much cases, uh, I found myself watching daytime TV quiz shows. Uh, and, uh, you know, I thought, you know, I could do this. And it's easy sitting in the comfort of your sofa uh, answering questions, but to, the true acid test is to whether or not you can go in front of a studio with bright lights, uh, with an intimidating question master, with a uh, watching audience, with uh, millions watching from the comfort of the sofa. I wanted to see how good I was. Uh, and, um, you know, I've done uh, quite a few shows. I uh, did um, 15 to 1. And just to tell us all of a, a, a side story, so far as that's concerned, I took six weeks of work. I read 27 encyclopedias, and I thought I was invincible. Uh, and I was so arrogant, uh, I couldn't even be bothered to stand with the following contestants when it came to drawing lots for the contestants' row. And guess what? Uh, I was the first person to get knocked out. And it taught me a big, big lesson I did. Firstly, never have an over-self-inflated importance of your own ability. And secondly, never ever underestimate people you don't know because you don't know how good they are. So that stood me in good stead. Uh, then my breakthrough show was a show called Greed, uh, where I captained a team where we won a quarter of a million pounds between us, which was really good. But as a young boy, I always wanted to uh, um, appear a mastermind. But uh, as I say, at the time when I was sort of uh, trying to become a lawyer, that was more important in terms of forging a career. And one important uh, message which I'm going to say to people is this. Procrastination is a thief of time. Because if you don't take the opportunity, it may never present itself. So uh, when sort of quizzing had lost its luster in the sort of mid-90s and they sort of uh, took off a university challenge off BBC2 and Mastermind in 1997, I thought my chance had gone. Uh, uh, but when they brought it back in 2003, and I remember, as I say, again, my career was going through a bit of a sort of a lull. And I remember seeing uh, the inaugural winner uh, or the rebooted show hosted by John Humphreys, you know, holding on off that trophy. And I thought to myself, I wish that could be me. I wish that could be me. You know what, Sean? Shake off the shackles of procrastination, procrastination, and do it. And it changed my life. Amazing. So what moment after you'd won that trophy for yourself, you'd, you'd seen yourself holding it, you ended up holding it for yourself. Yeah. At what point did you feel that you had the, an opportunity to turn that into... Well, I didn't tell a soul. The first time um, my friends or family knew that I won Mastermind uh, uh, was uh, because, you know, when, when you record it, it's not sort of shown the following week. So uh, it was shown six months later in the December. So I had six months uh, to actually realize, well, what's this going to do? Because once people realize what I've achieved, they're going to go nuts. So I didn't tell a soul. Uh, and uh, the week before the grand final, because I was the last person to qualify for the grand final, I went off to Jamaica, and I'll tell you the story how it went. Um, so just before the semi-final, I'm at the uh, Heathrow Airport. So I ring up my mum and said, Mum? She goes, what? She goes, where are you, Sean? I said, I'm at Heathrow Airport. She goes, what's wrong? 
they need to get out of the country. She goes, well, I'll put the phone down. And for a whole week, she was panicking. Didn't know I was. But I knew what was happening next. Because that whole week, the following day, they showed me winning the semi-final. And that week leading up to the grand final, you know, it was all about me. Am I going to make history? Is this man going to make uh, uh, become the first mastermind grand finalist? And, and I brought the trophy with me to Jamaica. Uh, so when I was coming back, I thought, let me have some fun with customs. So coming back through customs, I made sure I really looked really suspicious like I was a drug dealer coming through to customs. So this customs guy comes to my left. He goes to me, where are you coming from? I said, Jamaica. He goes to me, have you got something you should have? I said, I'm not sure. He goes, you better come with me then. So this time, gee, I am bursting with laughter. So we go into this major room, loads of people getting their gear turned over. So the officer thought he struck gold now. He said to me, um, well, what? he's really talking with in an aggressive manner. He goes, what are you not sure about? I said, it's in that box. He goes, you better put a box on the table. I said, right then, put a box on the table. He goes, you better open it. Open it. Now, unbeknownst to me, they'd shown Mastermind on the Sunday, but they also was going to show it on the Monday. And the only reason, it's the only time they've ever shown Mastermind Grand Finals on two successive days. And the only reason they did it is because I was back. There's no getting away with it because it was a, a historical moment. So he goes, well, you better open it. So when I pulled out the trophy, he goes, are you the guy with Mastermind? Everybody stopped what they were doing. I said, yeah. So he wouldn't have packed my suitcase. I said, no, 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 no. So put stuff back. I'm just killing myself with laughter. So gone into the news agents, uh, W.H. Smith. I'm on every newspaper front page. Oh my gosh. I've pulled out uh, the Daily Mirror, which was the most fun, the Daily Star, actually. It was the funniest one. So I turned to page two. He goes, We are trying to locate Sean Wallace. Do you know who he is? Ring his number. We'll call you back. So I knew what was going to happen when I went home. So I left my back door open for a whole week. So uh, because I was coming back uh, in the December, you know, obviously it becomes really dark at four o'clock. But I did park my car down the road put my hoodie on, walked across the road, did a press pack outside my house. So I walked past them, walked there. So I walked into my house. So I couldn't turn the light on because obviously they would have just hassled me. Once I realized they'd gone by, then didn't even to 11 o'clock. So anyway, following morning, picked up the trophy, went across the road, opened the door. Hi, mum. Put the trophy down. So she gave me a sort of ear bashing and a sort of, you know, um, a sense of pride of what happened and my dad was in a uh, working men's club and apparently they gave him a standing ovation I'd love to have seen that uh, but uh, I wanted to do, uh, do this on my own terms because you know people are going to basically think that it's going to change your life and the one thing about fame as uh, Andy Warhol has said uh, you only get 15 minutes of it sometimes you know obviously I've been in the limelight a long time now and I'm grateful for that but the one thing which uh, uh, gave me that reflection that six months leading up to people realizing that one was that um, I was old enough to appreciate what how my life had changed. I was old enough to appreciate that twenty years ago I was Sean Who. You know, people could walk. You could walk down the road from me. Who's this geezer there? So, uh, and, and whilst I'm in the spotlight, I'm not going to allow the sort of uh, bright dazzle of fame to phase me because it's not going to. Uh, but the one thing I'm always conscious about is this. I'm today's news, I'm tomorrow's chip prepper. And one day, they're going to turn the light of fame off. And you know what, guess what? I can go back to doing other things. Amazing. And you mentioned how much revision you do currently for your current TV show. So how many hours per day? I'd say about two hours per day. So what I normally do, uh, every single day I buy the newspapers to make sure what's the latest film, who's the latest prime minister, uh, 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 you know, events which are happening, uh, number one records, number one albums, things like that so to keep myself up to date 
because the one thing about uh, um, uh, the chase is very, very contemporary in terms of questions. Stuff I already know, I already know. 1066 Battle of Hastings will never change. But they're not always going to ask you those type of questions. They are going to try and ask questions which are sort of up-to-date and modern. So it's always important that we as chasers keep ourselves up to date, keep our minds refreshed in relation to, you know, the current state of affairs which are happening uh, in our country and around the world today. Absolutely. So how much time did you have to put in pre-Mastermind? When I was doing Mastermind, um, I was revising up to about eight hours a day because um, my original subjects were going to be the Kings and Queens of England since 1066. Uh, world history since 1945 and because I live only a stone's throw away from Wembley Stadium FA Cup final since 1970 so um, they vetoed my choice for Kings and Queens of England because somebody done it the year before so when they vetoed that now I, thought, I was going to pull out um, then I thought to myself what is the one special subject they can't beat me on football because apart from my love of law uh, my love of learning, uh, as you can see there in the back of uh, here, you can see there, um, those are the three things which define me, my love of law, my love of learning, and my love of football. Um, and England were playing in the European Championships in 2004 at the time. So uh, when the producer rang me up and said to me, have you decided what subject you're going to be? And because football's the number one sport in the country. So I said to him, can I do football-related subjects? He goes, well, what are you going to choose? I said, well, can I do... European Cup finals since 1970 and I took 1970 as a subliminal year because obviously everybody knows I'm a big Chelsea fan and that was a year that we won the FA Cup for the first time so he goes well what happens if you get to the semi-final well I said well because England are playing in the European Championships in Portugal at the time can I do all of England's matches at the European Championships qualifying and in the sort of major tournament itself from 1963 to 2004 well what happens if you get to the final well, I said I live the stone throws away from uh, Wembley can I do FA Cup finals since 1970? So he said, go away and consider it. When a, an hour later, he said, yep, we'll, we'll clear that. My chances of winning Mastermind went up by 20%. But uh, my strongest suit was my general knowledge. Uh, my general knowledge is really, really good. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. So to what extent do you put your success down to innate traits, skills and what skills or habits have you needed to develop over time as a young boy i've always had a, a passion and a lifelong love of learning always have done i wouldn't say i was uh, the brightest kid uh, in the block i would say i was the kid who uh, um, had dreams and ambitions uh, of wanting to actually achieve something uh, with my life if you were to come to my house or if anybody was to come to my house i've got a big mural on my wall called my inspiration so as a young uh, boy growing up in the 1960s, I was proud of the colour of my skin. I was proud to be black. Uh, 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 people who were, at my, um, were making great strides in the world at the time were black. Pele was the best footballer, God rest his soul. Muhammad Ali for what he achieved in boxing and what he achieved in terms of uh, um, civil rights. Martin Luther King. Gary Sobers, who was the first person I saw hit six sixes and one over. These were black people who were making a positive contribution. Bob Marley, the list goes on and on. So as a young boy growing up, I used to say, if I could achieve a fraction of what they've achieved in their life, then my life's going to mean something. So, um, and I remember when um, I first moved into my house and I painted that mural, I used to show off with people of pride. And uh, at the top of the mural in my attic um, was a picture of me the day I got called to the bar. So people used to say to me, how can you put yourself uh, amongst these people like Mandela, Pele, 
uh, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and so on and so forth. You know, my response to that was, gee, if you can't be a hero in your own house, where can you be a hero? Love that. So put yourself front and centre. Yeah. But at the centre um, of that mural uh, is my two biggest inspirations, my mum and dad. So, you know, the love and support they gave me over the years. And even though they divorced when I was 15 years old, the one thing uh, they made sure is that uh, whatever dreams and ambitions I wanted to realise, I'd do everything in their power to uh, help me realise those dreams by support. I love that. And you've taken the words from my mouth because I was just about to ask you about your earlier years. Um, you grew up in Wembley. You've written about that in your book. Yeah. So tell us a bit about what your career trajectory was looking like at the time and how you overcame some challenges. As a, as a young kid growing up, uh, you know, I grew up in the 60s, you know, as I say, for black people growing up in the 60s coming over, uh, um, my parents were second Windrush generation uh, um, immigrants. Uh, they came in the 50s. My dad worked for Heinz the best part of his life as a food processor. My mum worked as a sort of state registered nurse. It was very, very difficult for black people. Uh, you know, uh, racism was uh, rife. Uh, you know, you were called uh, names by virtue of your colour with impunity. Uh, and uh, you had to be able to stand up for yourself um, in terms of not allowing people who had a sort of shallow racist attitude towards you to actually get the better of you. My first big hero is my big sister called Sandra because when she came over... Uh, from the Caribbean in the uh, mid-60s. She always used to give me the encouragement to actually read, write. Uh, my dad, although not a uh, an educated man, uh, he um, told me, be aware of the world around you. So I used to actually sit with him to watch news at 10. So that's why I was aware of uh, uh, um, uh, events of the 1960s. So I can remember vividly the assassination of Martin Luther King. I can remember vividly the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. Uh, since 1968, I followed every U.S. presidential election as presidential election. I followed British politics because of the influence my dad gave me. I could read newspapers by the time I was seven. So I was quite bright, but I wasn't clever. But when I was 11, um, I wrote to the Bar Council, and uh, I remember it was my very first letter, uh, Dear Sir, D-E-E-R, spelling wasn't that great. Uh, but they told me what I needed to achieve in terms of qualifying as a lawyer. And I kept that letter for the best part of uh, going up to the age of 18. Uh, and, you know, you go through that rite of passage when, before you sit uh, your first set of exams, you got to go and see the careers teacher. And I remember uh, she called me and said in a sort of rather sort of dismissive uh, uh, voice, Wallace, what do you want to be when you leave school? By that letter sort of handing it to a examination. And she looked at it and said in a rather cold and dismissive fashion, You, a lawyer? At best, you're going to probably end up in a factory, but somebody like you is definitely going to end up in prison. She was right about me ending up in prison. Only she forgot to say that after having seen my client, I can go home again. And to be told at the age of 15 uh, that you are going to amount to nothing by virtue of either the colour of your skin uh, was very, very disappointing to say the very least. But even as a 15-year-old, the one thing I was determined um, to ensure was this, that nobody was going to control my own destiny. But the only way I could ensure that was to make sure I had an educated mind. When I look back on my uh, educational career, as I said to you before, although I was clever, uh, the one thing uh, being clever is no, it's not indicative of the fact that you could pass exams. And as I said to you before, um, you know, that was a really, really rough right of passage so far as I was concerned. Uh, it took me four times to pass O-level English language. And I remember 44 years ago when all my friends were going off to university and my grades weren't high enough. Um... And I remember bursting out into tears because, you know, like an 11-year-old Muhammad Ali, I'm going to be a lawyer, I'm going to be the greatest. And if you walk the walk in life, you've got to be able to talk the talk. 
Uh, and as I said to you before, uh, those were dark times for me because so far as I was concerned, there was no plan B. It was a lawyer or a lawyer. Uh, but, uh, you know, sometimes you've got to um, go through a bit of adversity in order to actually get to the other side. Uh, because as I said to you before, we start this interview. Uh, who wants to go through life uh, with a silver spoon in your mouth uh, and uh, life so easy for you because you've never had the knocks, you never had the scrapes, you don't know how to react to adversity. And, you know, with the support of uh, uh, the uh, teaching staff at a different school I went to called Elstone High at the, start, at the time, uh, they uh, were more supportive of uh, aspirations uh, irrespective of your background. Uh, and, uh, you know, they helped guide me through um you know, knowing how to sort of pass exams. And I had to sort of deconstruct the way in which I sat exams. Because it's all well and good having a photographic memory, remembering the dates and times of uh, uh, events. But if you can't write that under pressure, then you're going to struggle. Uh, the penny eventually dropped, so far as I was concerned. Uh, and um, I managed to pass my A-levels. Uh, I then uh, uh, spent three years at uh, the then uh, Polytechnic of North London. And as any undergraduate will tell you, uh, being an undergraduate is the best three years of your life because you go there as a sort of clever young academic, you know, uh, really excited. Uh, but uh, you leave there as a graduate uh, with a degree in your hand and you feel that you've got the world at your feet. And that's exactly how I felt at the age of uh, 23 when I got my uh, BA honours of, honors of law. And my mum and dad were there. Uh, and it was a very, very proud moment for them to actually witness that uh, their son didn't turn out to be a thief, didn't turn out to be a wastrel. Uh, I then set the bar exams in 1984. I managed to pass those first time uh, of asking. And again, it was a very, very proud moment for me. But so the one thing was struck home to me when they handed me that certificate, even amongst all the celebration was this. And it's another important thing I will say to people is this. Uh, all the hard work, all the success, all the achievement as you come off that academic conveyor belt, all it does is bring you to the style line of a different challenge. And that's all what success does. You must always, always, always strive to actually achieve, try to actually, you know, better yourself. Because the minute you sort of put your feet up and sort of have a cigar in your mouth and think, I've made it, that's when you're on the other side of the mountain on a slippery slope down. So it's always important that you as an individual set those challenges, set those goals for yourself. Keep yourself motivated. Keep yourself interested in relation to trying to get as hard as you possibly can, climbing up that greasy pole, getting to the top. And as I said to you before, when you get to the top, the hardest thing is staying there. I love that. So keep striving for something. Give yourself a new challenge. You do. And you see, when you do that, uh, people look to you as that goal model. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you know, the one thing I'm not comfortable with when people uh, uh, interview me, they always say to me, oh, Sean, you're a fantastic role model. I use the word goal model uh, uh, deliberately uh, because when you talk about people being role models, you put them on a pedestal. Um, and you expect them to sort of live an exemplary life, uh, sort of sugar candy, rose-tinted life that uh, they're a human being who's absolutely perfect. We all make mistakes. And when you do make mistakes and you're put on that high perch, the fall from grace can be swift and unrelenting. And uh, like Humpty Dumpty, if, you're, if you crack, you might not be able to be put back together again. So I'm comfortable with being called a role model, a goal model as opposed to a role model, and I'm comfortable closer to the floor because I make mistakes just like everybody else. 
So we it's well documented your two careers. Are there any other projects that you've been involved with over over time that we don't know about so much? Well, I used to be a part-time lecturer at uh, Hackney College when I first started out. As I said to you before, nobody's born an advocate. Uh, and and uh, trying to actually um, start a career, uh, which is very, very um, difficult in terms of not earning uh, vast sums of money, which people think they're barristers that earn immediately when you qualify. Uh, I need to actually earn money to support myself through my career. But also, I want to actually give something back um, because, as I say, I feel very, very fortunate and privileged to have had people who invested their time and effort in me to make me the person I am today. And I always talk about uh, it's important to put the ladder of opportunity for other people to climb up. Uh, and the one thing which has really disappointed me over the years is that people who are, are in a position who do have uh, the responsibility and the fame to try and help others are selfish and avaricious. Uh, avaricious in terms of not wanting to actually pass that knowledge on uh, and for me it's important uh, to actually put that ladder so people can actually learn from what I've achieved in life but I don't want them to match my achievements I want them to surpass them because that means that my philosophy is correct and you know um, hopefully they will then take that message on to somebody else to realise that somebody else invested their time, effort uh, and uh, wisdom in them uh, and you should be able to do that for other people now that might be a sort of uh, simplistic and altruistic way of looking at life but i think if more people were like that uh then the world would be a better place i think absolutely thank you for sharing now the next question the answers are always very very different um how do you personally see success and what does financial security mean for you so financial security means everything for everybody. You can have uh, all the success in the world, but uh, um, I remember in the 18th century, uh, Mozart was the most famous um, composer of his day, world-renowned, uh, but he died in a pauper's grave. Uh, so it's, I think it's important to try and have as much security as you possibly can. Uh, and uh, as I say, you know, this, this window of fame which I've got, uh, I am going to try and uh, make sure that I get as much uh, financial security as I possibly can, because as I say, uh, I'm the wrong side of 62 now, uh, and you, you know how sort of unforgiving that uh, uh, the entertainment industry can be in terms of ageism. Uh, but um, you know, for me, it's important. Uh, but success shouldn't always be measured in relation to how much money uh, you earn. Success should be measured in relation to uh, what you've given back and what you've achieved in terms of people looking up to what uh, uh, your role. Uh, uh, your role of honour if I can basically use that if I want a better expression what people can basically see what you've achieved and so for me uh, I want the name of Sean Wallace just like William Shakespeare just like Alexander the Great to resonate long after I've shuffled off this small coil and I have no doubt it will so you also mentioned in our pre-show conversation about creating your own opportunities and you mentioned to me it might have been on the show that when you, you had an ambition to go on to Mastermind and you told everybody about it. How important is that sharing your your vision with people and creating those opportunities? It is good, uh, but uh, um, as I became more successful in the show, um, uh, I told one friend and he told uh, the, the world and his wife of my success. And after that, I just locked it all down. And the reason being, I was the only uh, grand finalist who didn't have uh, family or friends in the audience. Uh, and the reason being because of the fact that I need to stay focused in relation to answer the questions as opposed to worrying about people who are in the audience. But uh, I told this story because it was a true story uh, during the Mastermind Grand Final. Uh, I remember looking up into the audience and I saw this, uh, uh, two angelic faces. They were mother and daughter. And it was like, I'm, I'm not saying uh, this lightly, gee, it's like God had placed them there. 
because they were supported. They were. I kept on focusing on them because it's nice to have somebody in your corner. Anyway, uh, so after one mastermind, um, I did what I call my Pat Cash moment. Do you remember Pat Cash when he won Wimbledon in '87? He sort of climbed the sort of uh, ivy and sort of was celebrating with his family and friends. Well, I did the exact same thing with the trophy. I went straight to that mother and daughter, uh, and we were hugging and we were sort of. And somebody, I don't forget that <laughs> they said to me, um, "Oh, isn't it nice he's celebrating with his uh, partner?" And I turned around and said to him, "I don't know this lady." But uh, the reason I went to them, I said to them, listen, I am so grateful for you, the support you gave me, and I fixed on them. And uh, if you ever watch uh, my winning mastermind, you see me waving at the end when I'm sort of celebrating, and I'm waving to them. Because if it wasn't for the, the, you know, the support they gave me, even though these were total strangers, and the one thing I regret, even to this day, is I never asked their names. And hopefully one day, um, you know, I'll be able to tell it in a greater forum whereby they'll be able to say, it was me, because I'd recognise them anywhere. I hope somebody listening to this podcast knows them. Yeah. And we can find them for you. So what advice would you give people who are contemplating life or a career leap of their own? What advice would you give to those? I would always say um, it takes courage to make a change. um, And sometimes you can be fearful in the measure of stepping out of your comfort zone. Uh, But I always say that, um, you know, no man is an island. I'm not an island. Uh, and it's important that uh, if you do have long loved ones or partners who are basically supportive of that change, if you do have colleagues who are supportive of that change, if you have organisations like yours who are willing to actually help foster that change because of the fact that you recognise that uh, the talent you have is not pigeonholed, it's not sort of stereotyped, it's not sort of strapped into one sort of uh, 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 particular uh, pigeonhole, as I said, and we can help you to actually make that change uh, and I think it's important that um, you know um, to be broad to be bold to be brave carpe diem see today uh, if you feel that you know what I'm bored with what I'm doing I've done it for 30 years and you know guess what it's given me no satisfaction I need that change and sometimes you go through life thinking what can I do in order to have the change I talk about that in my book uh, because as I said to you before G, I only wanted to be a lawyer but when my career was going through uh, the doldrums at uh, the age of 40, I didn't know what I could do. I was just a criminal lawyer. I didn't think my skills were transferable. Um, I remember I, I sat uh, the solicitor's exams on my 40th birthday. Because for me, I thought to myself, if I don't do something like that, then where am I going to go? Life ends at 40 for me. And, uh, you know, passing those exams gave me the confidence to realise that, you know, you can do this, even at uh, irrespective of your age. Uh, but at that time, I was w- really into uh, quizzing. And, uh, you know, I didn't do quizzing because I wanted to be famous. I didn't do quizzing because I wanted to win money. I did quizzing because I wanted to see how good I was. If there's a prize at the end of it, and I come first, guess what? I'm going to claim it. So for me, uh, the advantage I had when I was doing quizzing in the sort of uh, the turn of the uh, uh, new millennium it's because I was black. You didn't see black contestants on quiz shows. It got to a stage whereby I didn't even have to apply for game shows um, uh, because of the fact that they knew how good I was. And sometimes I'd get phone calls from um, TV companies asking them to do pilots for them and so on and so forth. So um, I never ever envisaged in my wildest dreams what had happened to me, but it had happened to me. And as I said to you before, uh, when we had the pre uh, uh, talk, uh, success, especially in the field of entertainment, uh, is 99% luck and 1% talent. But um, 
it's always important that you put your talent on show at all times because you never know who's watching you. And that's one of the things I always say to young people, and particularly young students, I say, you never know who's watching you. Somebody's going to have to succeed me as a chaser. Somebody have to be the next lawyer. Somebody's going to have to be uh, uh, the next mastermind champion. Ask yourself this question, why can't it be you? Why can't it be you? So it's always important to put your talent on show at all times because you never know who's watching you. Love that. So while we're on the topic, how can people find out more about you, follow you, get your book? Tell us all about you. Well, I'm on Twitter. Uh, obviously, I've got uh, a wonderful set of agents called Celeb Agents. Um, you know, if you if you go on my Twitter page, you'll see if you want to get the copy of the book. It's got all the details uh, written by, um, you know, my publisher's called uh, Cranthorpe Milner. If you look at the sex, drugs and rock and roll, it's the wrong autobiography for you. This is a book uh, which is designed to inspire. Uh, it's witty. It's got sort of... Um, you know, poignant moments uh, and the like. We'll put all the links in the show notes. Thank you so much, Sean. You've been an absolute pleasure on the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you. In this episode, we had the privilege of chatting to Sean Wallace, the dark destroyer from the popular TV show quiz, The Chase. Sean shared his wisdom and insights on how to succeed in life and work. One of the key takeaways from our conversation is not to pigeonhole yourself. Sean believes that we all have transferable skills and it's important to recognize them and use them to your advantage. He also emphasizes the importance of finding something meaningful and rewarding that motivates you to get you out of bed every day. Sean also stresses the importance of thorough preparation, putting clients' interests ahead of your own and visualizing success through the use of vision boards. Sean encourages us to act on our goals and grab the opportunities when they present themselves. He reminds us that we should always put our talent on show because we never know who's watching. Finally, Sean talked about the importance of doing what it takes to remain at the top of your game. For him, this means revising general knowledge for two hours every day. Overall, this episode is full of valuable insights from a really successful barrister and TV quitter. Whether you're looking to achieve success in your career or personal life, this episode had something for everybody. Thank you for listening.